Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles to Luke chapter 15 as we continue on with the parable of the prodigal son. Today we're looking at the pursuit of peace. Last week it was the pursuit of pleasure. Today it's the pursuit of peace as we look at the forgiving father. As we open up into Luke 15, we see that the Pharisees and religious leaders once again are complaining and criticizing Jesus that he sits and eats with sinners. And their complaint was this, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. But as you and I just sung, yes, amen, Christ receives sinful men. For you and I are sinful men and women. The religious leaders had a very hardened heart towards the lost. To answer his critics, Jesus shares three parables that we've been looking at to demonstrate God's desire to reconcile with sinners. Remember, the Apostle Paul tells us that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is the great news. This is the message that you and I are to be sharing. It's our message in ministry today. And these parables show how God will go to great lengths to reconcile a sinner to himself and that he is the one who actively searches, finds, and cares for the lost. Let me say it again because that's so important. It is God himself who actively searches, finds, and cares for the lost. It is not us that seek after God that are actively looking to be reconciled with God. That's what the scripture tells us, right? For we are all sinners. We are when there's none that seek after God. Again, again, to understand parables is to remember that they are simple stories with a single point. That's very important. They may have different applications, but they have one single point. They consist of spiritual truths that are found in just ordinary stories that the normal man would understand and listen to and understand in those days. They were usually illustrations that were taken from everyday life. So farming and and, uh, cooking and baking and all sorts of things. Parables were a way of telling a story that calls for a response. So as you and I are listening and reading these parables, we have to understand that Jesus is trying to call for a response from those original Pharisees and scribes and, and people who are listening to him. Now, in the same way, you and I have to understand this is that now has been translated in time 2,000 years ago. So as we are reading this, and you are listening to me reading, and we're talking about it, this parable is still calling for you to respond to what Jesus is saying. It's not just a story for us to read and try to understand, but it's calling for you and I to respond to the very words of God. The key to understanding the parables lies in discovering the original audience to whom they were spoken. In this case, it was to men who were religious leaders, who were scribes, who were men of faith. They were godly men, zealous for the name of God, who were very hardened towards other people. In this case, they were religious leaders, as we said. What Jesus shows is that he is a friend to sinners. Last week in the telling of the selfish son, 
we learn that there were several things that would have been very shocking to the religious leaders as they listened to the story. If you were not here last week, you can go online, YouTube, Facebook, and you can hear the story. But last week, we told the first part of the prodigal son where the son leaves. And in here, we find some shocking things that this selfish younger son does. One, he insists that he receive his inheritance now. The father graciously concedes to the son's request. Remember, he typically would not get it until his father died, but he wanted it now. The son then sold that property and left the country, left his family. He, his pursuit of pleasure comes to abrupt halt, abrupt halt as, as his own uh, um, decisions and providence brings him to a place of destitution where he finds himself employed as one who tends and feeds the pigs, those that would be considered unclean to him. And he's even desirous, envious of the food that the pigs eat. Pastor John MacArthur writes that everything about the, the demand that the boy made cut against the grain of Hebrew society's core values. Essentially, the young man is saying this to his father. I want my freedom, I want my fulfillment, and I want fun now. I want out of the family, he is essentially saying. He's actually telling his dad, I am better off with you dead. So give me my inheritance. I can't wait for you to die. He didn't care about the family or the legacy as he just callously just uh, sells it at a fire sale just to get rid of it so he can take off. And he doesn't care about the cost, either to his family or to himself. Eventually, as I said, his personal choices of cashing out and leaving his family and squandering away his money and providence. And we're going to see that our personal choices and providence, the circumstance of a famine coming and leaving him destitute, leads to disastrous results. He now has no money, he has no family, he has no prospects, and he's suffering in a distant land without any type of support system. If this was not shocking enough, Jesus now turns their attention, speaking of the religious leaders, to the response of the Father, which now shocks them even further. So with that, let's look at the sorrowful son, in chapter uh, 15, look at verses 17 through 19. It is here on the monitor, but again, I encourage you to have uh, a Bible. If you need one, I'd love to give you one today. Jesus goes on to say of the sorrowful son, the selfish son, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Father, I pray that as we open up your word, I, first I thank you for Luke's faithful uh, account, orderly account of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' parable. And Father, it has now been translated here in English so we can understand it. It's been preserved through 2,000 years, and it's here for our attention, not just to read a familiar story, but to respond, to hear, to understand. So give us wisdom and discernment as we do that this morning. 
that we may understand your word and respond to the Holy Spirit's calling. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to give you some observation. What we're seeing here is that selfish son that we looked at last week. He now has a change of heart. We see that in verse 17 as he eventually comes to his senses and he recognizes his real condition. He tried to work himself out of the difficult situations at first, right? To no avail. Instead of just running back home, he says, well, I'll just find a job, right? And, and I'll try to take care of myself. I'll build it back up. But he just continued to get worse and worse. He finally realizes that he is helpless and in need of help. In verse 18, we see that he recognizes that he has sinned. And that's so important. So he eventually comes to his senses and he recognizes not only is he without food and without prospects, but he also sees that his actions are the result of sin. He says, I arise, I'll go to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's very important. Personal choices and providence have led him to this place of understanding. His own personal choices of leaving his family in Providence, the famine. Those two always work together to bring us, to reconcile us to God. He begins to formulate a plan to go home. He recognizes that what he has done is wrong, not only against his father, but also against Yahweh, against God himself. And number three, as we go to 19 and 20, he humbles himself and returns to his father. Look at it. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's playing this in this mind, this conversation. You and I have done this, right? Whether we're going to go maybe to a bank and, and ask for a loan or to our boss for a raise or maybe just to our spouse. Where we play these scenarios in our head. What am I going to say? And so this is kind of what he's doing. He has decided to swallow his pride. We see his humility in his actions when he's ready to accept the consequences of his actions. He's not going to go back home and say, reinstate me as your son, or I deserve this, or I demand this, or this is your responsibility now to take care of me. Now, he recognizes that he has forfeited any right to be called son and determines to throw himself at the mercy of his father. He will go to his father and he will ask to be hired as just a regular day laborer. You can almost imagine, if you think about it, what he was thinking in his head. How would my father respond? Would he respond in anger and retaliation? Would he say those words that all of us hate to hear? I told you so. Maybe he's thinking, he says, but my father may say, you get what you deserve. Live with it. How many times have we maybe have heard those or said those, or those words ourselves? Or maybe the most fearful thing is rejection. His father just kicks him out, rejects him. To the Pharisees, this part of the story would have been enjoyable. They would have been shocked by the first part, but now they're enjoying this. This young man is getting what he deserves. This young rebellious son is getting exactly what he deserves. And that is true for the father had every right to legally kill his young son here. He had the legal right to stone his son for his rebellion. 
With glee, they would have responded, yeah, that's right to this man's plight. They were anticipating that the father would now seek his vengeance and punish his son. However, instead, as Jesus continues to tell this parable, as we read, we're going to read of the shocking reaction of a father who forgives. Look at verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But look at this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What wonderful words. He saw him and felt compassion. That in itself is enough just to, to bring us and bring our hearts to melt. But he goes on, he said, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven before you. He's now, he's now relaying what he's been, his prepared speech. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, but bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Three other observations again. He was been looking, the father has been looking and waiting for his son to return. You can almost imagine that every morning he woke up and went to the end of his property looking for his son. Is this the day my son will come back? Is this the day that we will be reunited? What we see here is that the father accepts him before a word is said. John MacArthur observes that the father was truly eager to initiate forgiveness and reconciliation with his son. What we see is that, remember, he had a whole thing in his head as he was going to say, but the father interrupts him and says, no, stop. Come. Son didn't even have a chance to give him his alternate plan to ask for forgiveness. The father is eager to initiate the forgiveness. But we also see, number two, that he expresses intense emotion at the return of his younger son. He feels compassion. He runs, he braces, and he kisses him. This is, this is something that the Pharisees would say, what is this man doing? To them, he is, he, is, he is just ruining everything. He's humbling himself. It's, it's, it's the wrong way. It's in the reverse. Jesus tells how the father loves and shows grace to his son. And there's five action verbs that describe this wonderful love and grace of the father. He saw, he felt, he ran, he embraced and kissed his son. There was not a told, I told you so. There is no browbeating. There's no lecture. There's just pure love and grace. What a wonderful picture. To the Pharisees, they're just confounded. This is probably making them angry. They're probably muttering to each other in side conversations. What is this man talking about? But even more importantly... So we look at verses 21 and 24, he restores his younger son and then celebrates his return. 
The father interrupts his son's prepared speech and immediately begins to restore his son. There there is no time, uh, intermediate time of proving his repentance, but just total acceptance and provision. There is no probational period. There's no uh, rookie time in there. There's no, well, let's wait and see. There's no, well, you take this job and work your way back into my good graces. It's also important here that many of us today would not understand. If someone came into our house, we would probably feed them, and probably one of the main uh, portions would be something of some type of meat, chicken, pork, you know, beef, something of that. But in those days, meat was not something of an ordinary meal. No, meat in first century Palestine, it was something that was special. When he says, bring the fatted calf, that's an animal that was kept for special occasions. It'd be that one or two animals that they kept fed in case someone special came or for a celebration and they would only bring that in and kill it and feed it for something special or a religious holiday. But for a son, he's ready to do this. He says that animal that we've been preparing, its time is now. From the father's point of view, his son was dead and now alive. We see the father's reaction in three ways. I believe it's here on the monitor. And I think this is so important as we consider because what we're seeing here is what God is doing for us is we see that he's not only restoring his son, but he's reconciling him together. So he's restoring him back to his former position. He's reconciling is that he's making peace. That's what it means, making peace with the father and the son. But then he's also rejoicing. He's celebrating. There's joy. He's glad. Now, all of this, as I've said, would have been very shocking to the Pharisees. They would have been outraged and befuddled by this father and his reaction to his son's return. They would say, this is not right. He should have treated his son with contempt and harsh punishment. Thomas Schreiner notes that the father could legally had his son killed since he was rebellious, a glutton, and a drunkard. In Leviticus, it gives that uh, admonition to do. The fact that he acted with grace is totally foreign to their concept of what justice would be. It would have been just to kill that child. They did not understand the concept of grace. The Pharisees had their own elaborate system of human traditions, man-made rules and useless ceremonies that they had added to the Mosaic law. And then none of those included grace. Clueless to how God treated them with grace from generation to generation as Israelites who rebelled against God. They were not quick to offer it in return. They did not see themselves as those who had received mercy and grace, but those that had earned their right to be accepted by God. The selfish son becomes the sorrowful son, while the rejected father becomes the reconciling father. What a change is happening in this parable. Jesus is pointing out several things in this story with the interaction of these two men. And I want to point you to two spiritual truths that this parable here is telling us. Number one 
is that the son, the prodigal son, this selfish son who was pursuing pleasure, who rebelled against his father, his father, who said to his father, you are dead to me, who enjoyed the gifts but not the giver. The son is an object lesson of repentance, of true, genuine repentance. The selfish son had journeyed from arrogance to humility, a very rough trip that cost him and his family a great deal. And let me tell you as a side note, sin never affects one person alone. Many of you could advocate for this, give witness. Sin typically affects those around us as well. The young man finally came to the place of facing his true, true condition by, as you see here, here's the showing of true repentance. I believe we have this. You see, genuine repentance includes accepting responsibility of his actions. And this is what this young man did. It's owning up to the guilt. Instead of denying or deflecting it as Adam and Eve did, it's accepting the guilt of their sin. Admitting the utter helplessness to change conditions. That's what true repentance is. And it's turning to someone who can truly help. Unfortunately, just keep that up just for a moment. This is not how you and I truly repent. And to be honest, most churches and pastors today don't even teach and preach repentance. To me, repentance is something that Israelites do and do, do in the past, and it's what they're going to do in the new kingdom, but it's not, or in, in the millennium, but it's not something that you and I have to do today. The Bible says that without repentance, we will not see heaven. Repentance is called for repent, Jesus says. It's the, it's the message of the disciples. It's the message of Christ. It's the message of the apostles. And that what you're seeing there is the very essence of what true, genuine repentance is. The apostle Paul writes to the church of Corinth, I believe this might be on the monitor, when he says to that church, he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to what? Salvation. Read that sentence, for godly grief. Ready? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's the repentance that God is looking at. But however, he says, whereas there is a worldly grief that produces death. So hold that up. There is a difference between being repentive and just being sorry. Sorry is typically, well, that's a worldly grief. That's, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry for the consequences. I'm sorry for the cost it's going to be and the trouble. That's a worldly grief. That's a grief that just says, I'm sorry, that just leads to death. But true repentance is the only one that leads to life. And by experiencing and expressing true godly grief, his heart is drawn back to his father. What we can do is that we repentance from rejection comes reconciliation. And from destitution comes restitution or restoration when we truly repent. Before we go on, we must understand, as you and I are reading this, that you and I are the younger son in this parable. He hasn't gotten to the Pharisees yet. That's next week as we look at the, the, the older son. 
Right now, as you and I read this, you and I can be harsh to the prodigal son, but you and I, as I shared last week, we are that younger son. We ourselves have said that God is dead. You might have not declared it. You might not have written it. You might not have put it on your Facebook. You might have put it on an Instagram meme. But you have said that when you pursue pleasure over the things of God. When you love the gifts that God gives, but you don't worship the giver. From our birth, you and I are the prodigal son. We need to understand that. Our default position from the day that we are conceived is that we are lost, alienated from the Father, and deserving of nothing but justice. And the Bible says that the justice of sin is what? Is death. That's what you and I deserve. In his blog, Dave Murray writes that in our condition, and this is something we must understand, and I think this may be a paradigm shift for some of you, is because you may think, well, I'm good. I've done my best. I've gone to church. I try to read the Bible. I try to give. I try to do all these things. However, our true condition is as of this young man. (laughs) You see, in our condition... We cannot see, understand, or enter the kingdom of God in our own doing. We cannot come to Jesus in our own strength. We are, there's nothing in us that desires Christ. There's nothing within us that can produce any good spiritual fruit. Now, I'm not saying that you cannot do good works, for there are many people who can do good works, but it doesn't produce any spiritual fruit. And in our condition, we cannot obey God. The Bible actually says that our minds are hostile. We cannot please God. We cannot know spiritual things. And and we cannot savingly confess that Christ is Lord. We cannot do that in our sinful condition. John MacArthur writes that the road the prodigal son had chosen to follow turned out to be an expressway to destruction. And that's the same expressway, the same road that we have taken from the day of our birth. And that our sin is a calculated, deliberate violation of the relationship we have with our Creator. You and I need to recognize that, that we are sinners. And that we are in need in a Savior because we cannot save ourselves. We and ourselves, from our personal choices and from providence, are heading down a road that leads to destruction. However, There's a great truth that's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I believe it's here on the monitor. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses of sin once you once once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And hold that there, Ben. This is you and I. This is what's describing all of humanity from the day of Adam and Eve. Each of us have that inherited sinful nature, that inherited guilt. That's where you and I stand until we get to the next sentence. And it has one of the wonderful words in Scripture. Let me go to that. Do I have it on there? But. But. 
but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What is Paul writing to the church of Ephesus? He is writing exactly the story of the prodigal son. What you see in the story of the prodigal son is you see the doctrine there of Paul writing there in Ephesians. Who we once were, what God has done for us. Though rebellious by nature and self-seeking, James tells us that God still gives more grace. Why? Because he is a forgiving father. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives us grace to the humble. Why did the son receive the restoration and the rejoicing and the forgiveness of the father? Because of his humility, his humble heart who repents of his sin. So that first truth was the son is an object lesson about what true repentance is. Number two, the father in this story is an object lesson about what true forgiveness is. The father is an object lesson about true forgiveness. You see, the forgiving father has been sinned against and has suffered the indignity of ingratitude and loss. Yet he never stopped looking and waiting for his son's return. He was willing, eager, and ready to reconcile with his younger son. In this parable, God is the loving father who seeks reconciliation and is eager to search and find that which is lost, or those, I should say, which is lost. This is captured in the gospel primer beautifully. When Pastor Vincent writes, when I sin, and this is speaking to the Christian, when I sin, and we know that we still sin after, after salvation, right? When I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. That's just so hard to comprehend. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. And he longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him so that he might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. God does not require my confession before he desires to forgive me. In his heart, he has already forgiven me. And when I come to him to confess my sins to him, he runs to me as it were and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me even before I get the words of confession out of my mouth. If anything, this morning, I want you to see the picture of a beautiful, wonderful creator who loves his children, who is filled with mercy and compassion, as we read in our call to worship earlier, who takes our iniquities and put them as far as the east from the west. This is the father that we have. It's not a God who condemns us. It's not one who sets and, 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 and browbeats us. It's not one who's ready just to thump on us when we fail. But we see a wonderful picture of the father. The first parable we saw is about the lost sheep. It showed God's concern for the lost, but also his tender and protective care of those who belong to him. We saw the second parable in, in uh, Luke chapter 15 was about the lost coin. This demonstrated God's effort to find the lost. He is the one who is sweeping out 
between the shadows and the, and the corners and under the tables and under the chairs looking for that which is lost. But as you see here on the mount of the third parable about the lost son, show God's wonderful grace and mercy that he freely offers to those that have rebelled against him. As I look out, I know many of you have accepted Christ. You've received that mercy and grace. But the thing is, is as we continue on our journey, that mercy and grace begins to dim. That celebration of the gospel within us dims as we neglect it, as we don't think about it and meditate on the beauty of that. Hence, many times that's why we not only refuse, but just neglect or stop sharing that wonderful story with others. You see, Jesus described his mission as the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul informs us here in the monitor that we who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, that God made alive together with him. So that's the first thing. You see that God has made us alive. We who were dead are now made alive. Together with him. How? By forgiving us all of our trespasses, all of our sins. How? By canceling that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So all those things that we have done, all the things that we are doing and will do, all those things that are still in rebellion against God, the ways in which we're unsatisfied with the promises of God. That's what sin is. God says he's nailed it to the cross. That record of debt is done. That's what reconciliation means. It means it's been reconciled. It's balanced. It's clean. That's what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. It's reconciled. It's an amazing truth. That should bring you and I joy. We should be celebrating that. That's why we come together is to celebrate that fact. In a moment, in communion, we're going to celebrate that fact. But we're still to continue that by asking others to join us in that celebration. We'll see that a little bit next week. In John 3.16, we read that famous and familiar portion of Scripture. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but ever everlasting life. And also in John chapter 1, but all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, this, this, this father could have said to his son, you are right, I will forgive you, but you will no longer be my son. I gave you all that I have. You rejected me. Now you can be my slave. You can be one of my servants. And that's how he could have taken. But that's not how God dealt with us. It's not how he dealt with Adam and Eve. It's not how he dealt with Abraham and David or the apostle Paul, the chiefest of sinners, he claims. And that's not how God dealt with us, amen? For he actively searched for us and brought us to himself so that we can see and taste that God is good. In the Church of England, they have a homily on the nativity. And I put this up there because it's a little bit lengthy so you can read silently with me. He said, before Christ coming into the world, all men universally in Adam were nothing else but a wicked and crooked generation, rotten and corrupt 
trees, stony ground full of brambles and briars, lost sheep, prodigal sons, naughty, unprofitable servants, unrighteous, stu- unrighteous stewards, workers of iniquity, the brood of adders, blind gods or guides, excuse me, setting in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's who you and I were. We to be short nothing else but children of perdition and inheritors of hell fire. But he goes on, but after Christ was once come down from heaven and having taken our frail nature upon him, he made all them that would receive him truly and believe his word good trees and good ground, fruitful and pleasant branches, children of light, citizens of heaven, sheep of his fold, members of his body, heirs of the kingdom, his true friends and brethren, sweet and lively bread, the elect and chosen people of God. I pray that that's the testimony of each and every one of you. And if not, then I pray that you would come today in humble repentance, confess your sin and bring yourself and say, Father, save me. But it's through the cross of Christ, through the obedience of Christ, that we can be made right. David Murray tells us, Murray, excuse me, tells us why these truths are so important. He says, first, because unless we know how serious our sickness is, we won't see our urgent need of the good doctor, Jesus Christ, and we will be slow or refuse to call upon him for mercy and grace. That was the prodigal son. Until his personal choices and providence brought him to the bitter end, he could not be brought to his father and reconciled. Why? Because we continually run. We continually to work. We continually to try to make things better ourselves. Second, this is good news. Speaking of the gospel, because we can tell people to stop trying to do what they cannot do and start trusting Christ alone for salvation. I pray that there's none of you here or there's any of you that might be watching me later that you're not sitting there feeding pigs when you could be eating at the table of Christ. What a huge relief when we finally grasp, I cannot, but Christ can and did. Third, this is good news because we will give God all the glory when we are saved by him. This son had nothing else to to glorify. He had nothing else to commend himself or to brag about other than the fact that I was not worth it, but my father forgave me with grace and mercy. We will realize that salvation truly is of the Lord. And if salvation is totally, completely, and entirely the Lord, then we will take no credit ourselves, but give God all the glory, both now and forever. And that's my concern for some Christians. Let me talk to you, those of you who've been Christians, whether it's been just for a few days, a few months, or for years. Do not forget that you are one of God's children, and you did not deserve it. It is not anything that you have done. That's why if you haven't got a copy of the Gospel Primer, I try to give it out to everyone when they visit and things of that nature. Read that at least once a week. Be reminded of the wonder. We always think, oh, the Gospel is for the lost. No, the Gospel is for us because we have to remember who we were, 
who God is and what he's done for us and what he's going to do for us. That is what brings us joy. That is what motivates us to share the good news, especially in a world that's hostile to our faith, knowing that if I share the gospel or say anything positive about Christ, that I could be canceled, I could be ridiculed, I could be cast out. We see it each and every day. You see, the father in this parable knew this young man. He knew his foibles, his tendencies, and his heart. And he still desired reconciliation. Why? This is important because, hey, he said, if I accept my son, what's going to change for him not to do it again? I know this kid. He's going to rebel again. It's in his heart. You know, but in the same way, why does God take us in knowing that we still are rebellious, that we still sin, that there are times that we still reject God? But then I remember this truth in Romans. But God shows his love for us and while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't clean us before he accepted us. He accepted us dirty. Here's a wonderful story by a pastor. He's going through some struggles now, so I'm not going to mention his name. But he tells a story about a youth and how, I don't know how many, I don't know if any of you have ever gone to a youth camp or a youth conference, but they can do some really silly things. But this one pastor was trying to talk about sin and the effects of sin and how you got to guard your heart, all good stuff. But he did it in a kind of a weird way. He, he took a rose and, 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 he, and it was beautiful. He clipped it off of another and he took it. He said, now see this rose. And, and he took it and he says, uh, and he put it in, and I think I'm going to add to it. I don't think I'm going to get the story totally correct. So forgive me if I don't. And he puts it in kind of like a, a thing and kind of spits in it. And he then tag, takes it and he says, now I want all of you to take this rose, look at it and smell it. So he, he does so, right? And so everyone takes that rose and looks at it and so on and forth. And then it finally comes back to him. By the time he gets the rose, it is just beat up. It's torn up. It doesn't have all of its leaves, petals. And he's trying to talk about purity. That's what he was. He was trying to talk about purity and about boys and girls not giving themselves to others because by the time you get to the one you truly love, you're impure. And he takes that rose and he says, now who would want that rose? Who would want to marry you if you were like this? And the pastor says, Jesus. You and I are that. We're missing some rose petals. We're bruised. We're torn. We don't have an aroma that's pleasing any longer. We've been used up and spit out, but so is Christ for you and I. You see, Jesus wants you. He wants you even in the state that you are. You and I need to understand that. Just as the prodigal son could not merit any of his own, and it could not gain the father's love, so it is the same with our father, who loves us and offers his grace freely. It's through Christ that you and I can have peace with the father. I want to show you a real quick clip from Reftunes. And this is a picture of Augustine and Pelagius too. I don't know if you can read that very well. But this is an argument they were having in the early church. Augustine was a great father, uh, patriarch. And they had this fight on 
what it is, who, who saves us. And, and Pelagius says, or, or, or excuse me, Augustine said, no, we're only saved by the work of God. And Pelagius says, no, I can earn God's favor myself. And Augustine there is, he was from Hippo, Africa, so that's why you see him on a hippo. He says, greeting Pelagius, what are you doing? Pelagius says, I've been here for hours trying to convince this guy to grab the life preserver. Augustine says, I'm Pelagius, I don't think. And then Pelagius saying, come on, man, it's right there. Just reach out and grab it. It's a picture of a you know, skeleton. A dead. a dead man can't grab anything. And to tell you the truth, that picture could be a little bit different. Because the picture is not just a life raft out there and asking for you to grab on it. But true salvation is Jesus is that life wrath, and he's grabbing the dead man, the skeleton, and he's pulling him, and as we come closer to him, we come alive. Ezekiel 7, 37, 5 says, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I pray that you have inhaled the breath of God, and you too are alive. Because we have a forgiving Father who shockingly shows wonderful grace and mercy to those who do not deserve it. Amen? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask Randy to come up. But I'm going to do something I usually don't do. But I want you to take a moment to pause and consider this parable, the second part of this parable. And then I'm going to ask you to pray and respond to whatever the Holy Spirit. But I want to ask you today, if you're here this morning and you have breathed in deeply of the breath of God, you have repented and accepted Christ as your Savior, you have that assurance that if you were to die today that you would go to heaven, would you just raise your hand? Just put it up and put it down. Thank you. Thank you. If you're here this with no one else, please not looking around. If you're here this morning, you say, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. If, if I were to appear before the pearly gates and he was to say, why should I let you to heaven? You would say, you know, I really don't know if I would have the answer. Would you slip your hand up real quick just so I can pray for you? Just slip it up and say, I'm just not sure. Would you take this time to consider those words? And would you give God the glory for the things he has done? Randy, would you come and close us in pastor's prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.